Greetings, good people. Welcome to Who Knows It's Just Life, the podcast. I'm your host, Kyle. Thank you for fitting me into your day today. On today's episode, I want to focus on Black August and really just my August in general. Um, it's been a, a, a crazy month, to be honest. A lot has been going on. Um, and for me, it was it was a big month of kind of revisiting parts of myself that I hadn't really been channeling as recent as much recently I've really in the last several years so I want to get into that a little bit too um but yeah first and foremost it's the very end of August now and school is back <laughs> so I know you know my son's going into the second grade and is back in person which I think is good they I think they have a lot of you know quite a few safety measures to make sure things stay safe it's awkward though because I don't I can't go into the building anymore which is which is it's weird now, not not being able to go in the building. It's it's weird, and I realize how much it was great to like be able to walk in the building and see the staff and drop them off in front of the classroom because that's what I used to do. At least out back when he was in kindergarten, that's what I used to do. Um, so yeah, it's it's a bit of an adjustment. They have this whole outside process of having the kids come into the school, which is a little weird. It's nice when the weather isn't too bad, but um, not sure how it's gonna work when the weather is crappy. But maybe it'll be smoothed out later on. Um, but yeah, I'm glad he's back in the school. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about how it's going to go socially. There might be some challenges. I'm sure all the kids are going to be adjusting and all that's going to be, I'm, I'm not sure what's ahead of, ahead of me, ahead of us, but I think it's a necessary shift. You know, sounds like things are safe enough, I think, to be able to, to, to do this. And I think that we're going to be testing the kids. They're going to be testing staff and stuff. Like that. There's a number of things they're doing to try to like, you know, make sure things are safe. Um, so I'm I'm happy about that. What's weird though is that I have a commute now, <laughs> again for the first time since I don't know, I don't know in months I guess. So, you know, my the job right now is remote, and I'm less than thankful for that. Um, one of the downsides of, and I remember this when when COVID first hit. One of the downsides of you know, the quarantine situation was that I, I, you know, wasn't driving and everybody's like, why, why would you miss your commute? And it's like, I, I was crushing audiobooks and podcasts at the time, you know, when I was driving. So that was an adjustment. I had to kind of figure out when I was going to get some listening into podcasts and, uh, and audiobooks, um, you know, without the commute. So that was a bit of an adjustment, especially now working from home. But, you know, you know, getting back into driving him to school is fun. We had a couple of rituals, I mean, a couple of years ago now where we used to listen to like either a podcast for kids or music or whatever. So fun to get back into that with him and I get to get back into some uh, good listening uh, for, for my own edification as well. What else in August? Just in terms of updates. Uh, so in August, traditionally, I do a family trip with uh, my mom's family. We all go up to Rhode Island. So we'll... My mom's family is all in Rhode Island, as, as you heard in the episode with her. Um, and she mentioned the, the beach, the beach house trips and stuff that we did when I was a kid. That That's basically st- stuck, you know, my whole life. Essentially, we might have missed a couple years when I was a professional. You know, not everybody had the money and space to do it based on where people were at. Um, I, I don't know. I, maybe I missed a year. Maybe, maybe two. I can't remember. But I, f- I feel like it's something I've done my whole life. And as my mom mentioned, it's something that my grandparents, you know, you know, footed the bill for for the most part, while everybody had families and everything. And now that myself, you know, me and my, my all my cousins are grown for the most part. I'm a couple still in college, but basically, 
you know, we, we, we all kind of pitch in and, and kind of do our part to kind of keep it alive. You know, we have a cousin's house and we have, you know, my mom and, and, and uh, other family have, have a house nearby and whatever. So like, you know, we're basically just blessed and thankful to be able to like keep that tradi- tradition alive and, you know, do, do some, do some fun stuff there. So, um, yeah, it was, it, Rhode Island was a blast. It was, it was a lot of fun being there. The highlight, one of the, well, there was many highlights actually. Um, you know, one of the highlights was the ability to play tennis in the tele- tennis hall of fame, um, which I posted on Instagram that, that was awesome. Um, like my, so I, I grew up going to the house in the back of that picture on Instagram, the white house was the house, was a house my granddad owned. And it's, it's just a, it's just a figment of my memory growing up. And obviously for my dad, he, he, he literally grew up there. Um, and so to be, and I remember, you know, we used to sit on the back porch every once in a while cause the Newport jazz festival had some stuff that would happen at the, at the tennis hall of fame. So we would just listen to the music for free cause we were so damn close right across the street. Um, so that was always part of, you know, as part of how I remember summers as a kid. So it was real cool. My aunt who plays tennis, she actually, I think she, she actually coaches tennis uh, for middle school, her middle school students. Uh, so she, she's a big tennis player. And so we, we, she booked time for us to play at the tennis hall of fame. And, and it was just surreal with the court we happened to be placed in was right under the watchful eye of, of 22 free body, which is the house my granddad owned. Now, of course he, he sold the house um, around, you know, probably shoot about 20, 19, 20 years ago. Um, and so the house is no longer in the family, which is kind of a sore spot, but you know, regardless, it's still, still there in memory. And, um, Anyway, so it was really it was dope dope to be able to play tennis, you know, with with that building right looking at me, you know, it was just super super cool to do that. Um, but yeah, the my the kid had a great great time. It was a blast. Um, yeah, it was just it was just a good time being in being in Rhode Island, and it it always is. So that's cool. But yeah, so I want to I want to get into Black August a bit because it's something that I honestly was ignorant about, you know, and I, I've, 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 I've known about it, but super um, peripherally. And, and I never really understood what it really was. And this year was the first year that I really kind of poured into it and really kind of got into it. And I I got into it a little, a little late and I didn't really do any kind of fasting. One thing I did do, and I guess this could fit in as an update too, is that I, 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 I'm doing the Spartan Stadion race in DC at Nationals Park. Uh, it happens to be on September 11th, so August. I'm I'm sitting there like, oh, okay, I need to start like you know, I, you know, if you've heard the show in the prior episodes, like I, I do try to exercise, work out, like at least be active every day or or, or multiple days a week. And so I'm you know, coming into August. I'm like, okay, this race is coming up. Let me actually start working out, whatever. And part of Black August is about discipline and exercise and study and things of that nature. And so kind of just with that race coming up, I did, you know, pick up the effort and I was in front of my, I was actually challenged to run a, a mile a day for the first time in my life. I don't, I'm not a runner, but uh, anyway, so that was something that I started doing while I was in Rhode Island and it, it kind of stuck the rest of the month. So part of the spirit of black August in terms of the, the, the discipline of exercise I, I definitely took to, and that was a little bit before even realizing that was a big thing about Black August. Didn't do the fasting or anything like that. And and looking back, I, I you know, well, I can't wish I 
did something I didn't know about, but I'm definitely going to try to incorporate more of that into my commemoration of Black August in, in future years. And I also want to delve into more of George Jackson's writings. I've been a, I've, I've been in classrooms. So Dr. Jared Ball, somebody I mentioned before, he, he, uh, I was a student of his at the University of Maryland, and he, you know, so I, I've absorbed some of George Jackson's material just through Dr. Jared Ball and, and others at University of Maryland, Sol- Solomon Kamajan and the Brewer Cultural Center and others. I never read from cover to cover any of George's books. So I definitely want to do that more intentionally. And obviously I don't have to wait till next August to do that, but that's something that if I don't by next August, I'll definitely pull out one of those and, um, you know, really study that and, and have that be part of what I do for, for black August next year. I do want to shout out the Lex, let's talk bro book club, um, because they, did have George Jackson blood in my eye as a as a book so I did actually um, touch on some of George's writings earlier in the year thanks to that book club so um, but yeah next year it'll be more intentional and more of comprehensive but yeah I I just I just think that so so for what I was going to say was that like Black August for me I, th- <laughs> I, in my, I I thought Black August was about black capitalism and that's so it's so gut-wrenching to admit that but this is a show it's called who knows it's just life right it's about not knowing and learning okay so I'm admitting that I had a woefully ignorant perspective on what Black August was and I, I, I think I thought it was affiliated with like you know Black Wall Street and just like you know upper mobility and that kind of thing and supporting black businesses like I, I that's the impression I had for for some years uh, and that also speaks to the other part of what I want to address is that I have been out of movement and activist spaces for a long, long time. And and I was heavy into that in college. And after graduating as an engineer, I was like, well, let me go ahead and work as an engineer and, and pay off these loans and some other things. But so I, I was in corporate America for like forever, basically. And and now I I, I really want to get back into working with people for people, you know, for the people, you know, movement work and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm just getting my toes back into it. And, and I, I mean, I have a lot to learn, um, but I have a lot of energy still. And I have a lot of, you know, I have some corporate skills that can hopefully apply somehow. I'm hoping, you know, I, in any way that I can help, I'm, I'm just trying to, trying to find avenues to support and help with, with the movements that people have been doing um, for, for years. Um, so, and generations to be honest. So, um, so yeah, this, this, this is a, this was a big month from that perspective because I really want to, you know, tap back into that. So anyway, my, so I started getting involved with this group called Urban Temple out of DC. Uh, and I originally met, uh, some of the leaders there back in April and I think I might have mentioned that when I in, a, in an episode back earlier in the year. But anyway, this summer I really started getting getting more involved with them, and they they have they had a series of Black August events, you know, which which was dope. I, I couldn't attend all of them because some of the travel conflicted with a couple of the dates. But they had, uh, um, you know, a dinner set a dinner a dinner uh, later in the evening on one sat on one Saturday, and then. What just happened was the pilgrimage. They do an annual pilgrimage to Richmond, Virginia. And this was definitely 
a, a, you know, an amazing experience. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. Um, Cause one thing I do want to say first and foremost is that I, I have studied up on black August. I have learned much more about what it is about and I don't want to, I'm definitely no expert. So I don't want to speak it here as though I'm an expert, but I I've watched some content. Um, one of, one of the things I watched was um, black power media, which is, uh, you know, Jared balls affiliated with them. Um, they had a, a cool a, a piece about Black August um, on at the beginning of the month, and they've had a couple of other uh, talks about it since it, at later times in the month. So that's been a, a gateway piece for me to to really re- reacclimate what it is, what this month is about. It's about it's a commemoration. It's not a celebration. It's focused on political prisoners, political prisoners who specifically died trying to free themselves and others, um, folks who were wrongly convicted of certain like small offenses, but also in just the violent nature of the prison and the carceral system, you know, and, you know, specifically George Jackson and, uh, and Soldat brothers being uh, convicted or not convicted, but um, accused of killing a white police, uh, a white uh, prison guard and all that. And Jonathan Jackson's attempt to, to free them and, and everything and, and everything else. All of that is is really what Black August is about. It's 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 truly commemoration. And I already mentioned, and they were talking about they 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 that the Black Power Media con- um, show that they did was kind of re re you know taught me that it's about fasting, it's about commemoration, it's about discipline and and, and study and those types of things. So you know, I, I really appreciated that work to kind of you know reeducate me or educate me onto uh, as to what it, it truly is about. And I'm going to try to do a better job of commemorating uh, that that those efforts next year. So the pilgrimage to Richmond, Virginia, was extremely impactful for me. I didn't know what to expect going in there. Um, you know, we we all we we drove separate cars. I, I went with my man Kenny, his kids, and. Um, and another sister in the group Nova. So, you know, we, 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 we rode down there together and that was, that was a lot of fun. Just the, the ride itself was cool. Um, the first stop was at a uh, mass Af- African burial ground right on the water there where a lot of uh, African folks um, were buried after either af- after coming on the ship, you know, if folks were dropped off, you know, whatever, if they didn't make it right then, this was a place where a lot of Africans were buried. Um, and also it was, a, it was also a place where uh, a lot of gallows were put up, you know, later on in at l- later points of enslavement um, as a, as an executioner, as a place for executions of enslaved, of enslaved people and stuff like that. So it kind of had a, you know, it's a very, very solemn place. And so there were some commemorative uh, monuments and plaques there to kind of, center us and to educate us about what that about that space and that space actually was fought for too that space was a parking lot and the university across the street i can't remember which one it was now but they fought to keep it a parking lot and thankfully you know organizers knowing what that site was knowing that knowing the the gravity of that site and the meet the historical meaning of that site you know they fought to keep it from becoming a parking lot for the university and it's, it's nicely manicured. It's all grass. Um, there are still light poles up there, which is interesting, but 
it's it's nicely nicely manicured grass it's 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 it looks more like what it should be but it's still way understated like if you thought of any other mass grave or mass uh, any other spot of, of of significant commemoration for any group of people like it's super understated like the part like you just pull over on the side of the road you would drive right past it if you didn't know it was there um and I, this is this is one thing about reparations that i think we really need to include which is something that the the uh that narc talks about a lot is you know having commemorative spaces and having you know having markers for you know one one thing is having markers for for lynchings and mass uprisings and other things like that but having having this be more of an officially you know designated space where people driving past know what that is you know and having that just be part of the fabric of you know the, the town of Richmond that particular area of Richmond these these types of things need to be more in the front in the forefront and again I, I keep saying this it's like this is this is part of the problem of the country like we don't tell we're not telling an honest history the story we tell about the United States is not accurate so then the next part of the pilgrimage was we linked up with the Alegba Folklore Society which does a very dynamic and powerful tour through Richmond um, a lot of which follows the the well the city of Richmond calls it the slave trail, but you know we always try to reframe that language and say the trail of the trail of enslaved Africans. Um, and uh, so, the the Alegba uh, Folklore Society took us through that through that journey. We stopped at the uh, the capital the Capitol building, um, which you know is extremely <laughs> extremely uh, historical from for, for multiple reasons. I mean, it was where the, the, the 1705 slave codes um, were, were written and codified, um, you know, back before, you know, Virginia was or before the United States was a thing. Um, so it was definitely a, a pivotal. It was a pr- it was a precedent setting building in terms of legislation around de- dealing with enslaved Africans and things of that nature. So, you know, it's, it's historical from that perspective. And obviously it was also the capital of the Confederacy when, when the Civil War broke out too. So, you know, Richmond has a lot, a lot of history and even just the topography They were talking about how the capital is high up on a hill and you can look down and literally see, you know, the, the, the land upon which, you know, enslaved Africans were being come, were being brought onto, you know, the, you know, occupied United States shores. Um, so, yeah, so that was part of the tour. Then was you know probably the more the more impactful piece, which which um, just really really got me. Um, there's 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 the actual you know again Richmond calls it the slave trail, whatever. There's an, an actual trail that starts where uh, ship slaving ships would would disembark folks you know from from the ships from the Middle Passage and this is the part where the enslaved Africans would be, would have to walk from there to either a, a, cell, a holding cell at night, or they would be marched right to the auction block basically. And uh, they described that this took place at night. Um, and it was a very moving period of time because during, while they, while they spoke through this history, um, we did some some meditation, some breathing, some uh, some commemoration, and just you know really calling on the ancestors to you know 
to to be present with us in that moment. And then what they did was they lined us up and they had us go through part of the walk as though we were enslaved. And it was it, it was very benign in terms of what we had to go through. And it's just amazing how pivotal it was nonetheless. Um, what they did was they had the men in the line in front and they tie it. They put a, a rope around our waist, very loose. It wasn't, you know, wasn't tight or anything, but we had to hold, we had to hold the rope around our waist and the, the then it also went to the next person behind us. So the men were first, then the boys, then the girls, and then the women last. And the brother who was leading this portion of the the tour took on the persona of a driver, as they call them, uh, so which is to say a white man who was leading us as the enslaved off of the ship onto towards the the auction blocks or the or the holding cell or whatever, and. I mean, it was, it was, it was terrible. It was, it, my man was in the front and I mean, I could, I was two people behind him and I could, or I was, I was the third in line. So I was one person behind him and I could feel his resistance to, to the driver. The driver would say, boy, go, boy, stop or whatever. And it was, um, it was just tough, you know. It was just tough, and we, 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 us in the front, we couldn't see anything else. We could hear him say, "Oh, fifteen lashes for you for putting your hand down, or fifteen lashes for you for dropping the rope, or whatever." Like, it, it, you know, he, he was he, like, you didn't know what he was talking, who he was talking to. He could have been talking to a, another man, or children, or or a woman. You know what I mean? And we had, we were ignorant. If we tried to turn around, he would, he would, he would yell at us, you know. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was just, it was just, it was. <laughs> And, and and he he would kind of he would just be taunting. He was like, "Oh, I know Master So and So would love these young gals." Blah 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 blah. Like he he just was, he was just um, being as offensive as he could be with it. Which which um, yeah, I don't know. And 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 it, it was real to an extent. What the actual experience was like was even worse. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, like I said, what we went through was benign. I mean, the folks were clasped with metal, you know, metal collars, metal um, restraints on hands and wrists, or I'm sorry, wrists and, and ankles. And obviously if it was a particularly hot night or a cold night, like that metal is going to reflect that that temperature and either burn you or, or freeze you out. Um, and at the day we happened to be doing it, it happened to be like a 95 degree day. Granted, it's in the middle of the day. Um, but it was just rope. Obviously, it's not nothing like that. But damn, like, can you imagine being bound by something that's literally burning your flesh or 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 um, or freezing your flesh if it were cold and being barefoot walking through this path? And it's at nighttime. And and I actually chose to do it barefoot. I, I, I kept my shoes off because I, I wanted to feel the earth with my feet and. I I want to do more of the path that way. Uh, we 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 went. I don't know how long we went. Probably like a quarter mile, maybe a half mile. Probably a quarter mile, and we turned off, you know, to to exit. And the path, I think, in totality is at least three miles long or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. If, I just I just want to do more of it. I want to do more of it. And I want to be very intentional about that experience. 
And the other factor that would make the real experience even more traumatic is just the fact that the language being spoken, directing the the expectations and whatever else is a language we as enslaved Africans have never heard before. Um, or if we've heard it, we don't understand it. I mean, we would have heard it a little bit, you know, prior to and on the, on the, on the journey here and all that, but we don't know the language. Um, so I thought it would be interesting if, if the, if the like what folklore society would, would start it off, like speaking some different language that they pretty sure we don't know just to kind of emphasize the language barrier first and foremost. But yeah, it was, it was just, um, it was, it was, it was rough. It was, it was, it was very grounding to go through that experience. And, and like I said, I, I could feel my man like up in front. He was, he was resisting. Like there was a time where he, where the dude said, boy, go. And he, he waited for like seconds and the seconds felt like minutes. And it was like, yo, bro, just go, man, just go. Um, but it was like a, it was like a slight resistance but not a resistance to the point where, you know, it, it, it became an issue, but it was just crazy. And then the the dude who was, who took on the role of the driver, he went far ahead at one point. And like I said, I couldn't see behind me, but it took my mind probably a minute or minutes to realize this dude is not even here. Like, why am I still complying with these, these instructions? Like there's no threat of whips. And honestly, he wasn't really whipping anybody anyway, but it's just a verbal like. So for me, it was just it it was just amazing how fast the mind can be coerced into into certain behaviors and how behaviors can be normalized. Especially through the threat of violence, right? Like human beings are extremely malleable, moldable. And and I experienced that to a degree in that in, in that moment. Um, and the debrief was also so we debriefed afterwards. It was it was you know emotional. It was very um, interesting to hear all the different people's perspectives. Um, and, and in the and in the shuttle on the way back, um, one of the sisters was saying how powerless they felt being in the back. The women. Um, they could see the babies, they could see the children, they could see us, but nobody was watching them. And it's it was very obvious that the white folks doing this were intentionally thinking about every possible way to break the human spirit of those going through this experience. Um, so the men were taken out of a role of protection by being in the front. They couldn't see anything about their 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 children or 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 women or anything. Women were completely exposed and at worst they were tortured by watching whatever was taking place ahead of them knowing that they were powerless and they were not protected. Um and and the babies in the middle like they they were just in the middle of that and and you know couldn't see their their mothers, you know, or or aunties or whatever. So yeah, and so and and so the tour continued. They brought us to the uh, one of the spots on the canal where they uh, did the auctioning and whatever, and they talked through some things. Coincidentally, at this part of the tour, 
um, they had the, the other folks in Richmond were doing other tours and it was a bunch of white people and they had a guy driving a boat who was dressed in like colonial garb and and you know one of the sisters with us was like I wonder what they're hearing about Richmond history and it was just kind of like a it was it was kind of funny but it was also kind of not because again this is what part of the problem the story that we tell about the United States and all that um so yeah I don't know I don't know I do know it it was it was a powerful experience overall. Oh, and the, the then they one of the last steps was a, like a, a monument that they had for like reconciliation or whatever, which was some bull because, you know, as we talk about with reparations and stuff, it's it's about those who were victimized have to be the have to agree to the terms of the 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 repayment or the the reconciliation or whatever so whatever monument this is you know that doesn't do a damn thing in terms of truly healing the experience of slavery the legacy of of enslavement and all of that so it was kind of a a, like a you know it it was it's kind of a slap in the face to like see that and be like really like that that's 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 how we've closed this chapter obviously we know it's not closed but you know that you, you could tell that was the attempt so I don't know. So, th- yeah, it was just it was that was a huge, huge moment. And I really give props to like my folklore society for for doing that. Um, it was a, it was an amazing activity. And I, I really encourage folks to do it. And it, actually, one of the brothers and I on the on the shuttle were, were talking about it as well. We were saying that we think I, I was saying it. He, he had the thought if we had the same thought at the same time. We were like, yo, white people should have to do this. And I was saying, yo, white people should have to do this and they should have to take turns being the driver. Because not only do they need to experience the, not only do they need to share in the experience of those enslaved, they need to understand that their lineage is of the driver, right? Now, obviously, not every white person descends from a driver, a slave owner, whatever. I know that's not always that's not necessarily the case, but they need to understand that the person with their complexion in history was that driver, and they need to understand both sides of that coin because ultimately they were the ones in power and they were the ones that made that be the thing in this country. And I, I think that that has to be part of it for white people. Like I, I don't, I'm not going to say every black person needs to go through that. Black people have experienced traumas and, you know, we, we've experienced things in our own right. Right. Like, so what I will say is that white people do need to do it because, we already we already know this isn't taught well enough in history classes, much less for white people, much less in predominantly white white spaces. That's just I already I just know that's not happening. You can see with this reaction to whole, you know, the whole uh, critical race theory or whatever that nonsense is. Like, not not that the not that the critical critical race theory is nonsense, but just the fact that this is even a discussion about like really what is the honest telling of American history. Anyway, I digress. Fo- uh, Props to the Allegra Folklore Society for, 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 for doing that. One, one thing I want to acknowledge, though, is that, like, it was really hard to leave that space and look at white people. And I'm mixed, right? So it was just it was just difficult like to 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 know that white people like so and and, and this came to mind because like you know later on in the tour there was a group of white people and they were kind of acting like you know silly or just f- f- you know carefree or whatever it's just like yo you know what like nah that's that just don't sit right with me like it just like 
it was just it was just really difficult coming out of that experience and and so you know on the on the way back home got into this discussion and and I know it's a it's a critical discussion in terms of of what to do with white people, right? You know, there's a lot of debate and a lot of thought going into like, you know, human nature and and do certain people have different natural characteristics, natural traits, and if so, how should they be treated in in a revolution, you know, to kind of correct the ills of society as we see them today. And so, you know, and I've had this conversation with many, many people over the years. And when I got back home, it was late. It was like, it was probably like 1130 at night or whatever. And I was thinking through that, that idea about what do we do with white people? And mind you, I just left an experience where I wasn't very wild about white people. Right. But, but, but I ultimately believe that people are people. Right. And so anyway, I wrote I wrote I wrote this this thing. It was like a stream of consciousness. I edited it a little bit. I got a little bit of feedback from from some folks. So um, I'm actually going to read it, and it's it's just what I was thinking. And I probably I probably started this document at like 2 a.m. <laughs> um, a couple of nights ago. Uh, you know, after after getting back from that from that pilgrimage. So it's called "Is There a Place for White People When Your Revolution Is One." Those who call themselves white are to blame for the white supremacist, capitalistic, patriarchal system that's causing humanity and the world deadly harm. When diving into the gruesome details of this period in human history, one will rightly ask, how could human beings do this? The sad truth is that human beings across the planet have found it possible to reach repulsive acts of torture, rape, death, exploitation. White people, though, have been particularly capable of such acts at an unfathomable frequency and impact. So many cite a natural preference for selfishness, violence, and exploitation as part, if not all, of the root of this difference. The cause of these traits is said to be the resource scarcity on the European continent. I believe that all people, including white people, are fundamentally, i.e. naturally, the same biologically, emotionally, cognitively, etc. I also think that all humans share a relatively small list of needs for a happy and fulfilled life. Chief among these are sustenance, security, peace, love, and belonging. Without all of these, humans will suffer to varying degrees and durations. For people who would become white, the scarcity of sustaining resources on the European continent resulted in insecurity. And I'm going to break away from the writing here and just say, it also might have just been a perceived scarcity in the sense that they weren't as affluent as neighboring cultures. Um, that wasn't in the writing. Let me go back into it. Upon exposure to people from other parts of the world and their abundance of resources, that insecurity developed into jealousy and greed. These would lead to illogical justifications to ignore the love and belonging they should feel towards their fellow humans and resort to inhumane violations of peace, especially against people of darker hues. Res Momenicum discusses that trauma can be passed down through through subsequent generations and be seen as culture. A trauma, something that was an unnatural experience, can be internalized, passed down, and acted out 
and seen as culture and observed as quote unquote natural. Evidence of this exists in white supremacist rhetoric about the alleged violent nature of black people. We know that the violence black people do commit is rooted in centuries of inhumane and traumatic conditions imposed upon them by the white supremacist capitalistic patriarchal system. All the while, white violence on black Americans far exceeds the violence, far, far exceeds black violence on the continent. Here we can begin to reframe the experience on the European continent as a traumatic experience to the either real or perceived scarcity of sustenance. This traumatic experience, passed down and acted out culturally, can be incorrectly seen as natural. If we are able to reframe their, quote, natural behaviors as a result of the trauma of, of sustenance scarcity, we can see that they should be capable of healing that trauma and returning to a healthy norms of human civilization and social order. I'm not advocating that black people do any work to that end. We need to heal our own traumas and build towards the holistic societal norms that are healthy for humans and the earth that sustains us. However, I am saying that white people have a place when my revolution is complete, provided they do their work to get there. They undoubtedly have the highest mountain to climb. They must shed their false sense of superiority, confront their insecurities, and reconnect to their humanness hopefully with abundant, genuine acts of reconciliation along the way. And they must do all of this on their own. They started this mess after all. Ironically, the survival of the concept of whiteness depends on how quickly they begin this process. We black, brown, and indigenous people have already seen that human survival and the survival of the planet depends on our revolution. We must and we will take the reins, retake the reins of civilization navigation, save the planet and the human condition. If white people don't start their revolution, they will cease to exist. The choice is theirs. So that kind of like summarizes my thoughts, at least at this moment, about what to do with white people. I know there's people who think that white people are the devil and have no place in anybody's revolution and need to be done away with, cast away or something. I'm not sure exactly what their end game is. I, I tend to believe what I said in the, in the piece that all people are capable of the same thing, um, good or bad. And that we all need to heal our own traumas, heal our, heal our own insecurities. And, arrive at our place in this revolution. Whew. So August was a month. August was a month for sure. For multiple reasons. Some of which I didn't get into here, but um Yeah, I'm looking forward to growth in this space. I really I really want to challenge myself. I, I know I need to decolonize my mind a great deal. I've been in corporate America for a while. I need, I, I have a lot to learn. I have a lot to process and I'm here. I'm ready for the challenge. I really am. Um, and check me if, if you feel, feel like I'm faltering on that. Like, I, I, and there's going to be times where I might, you know, and struggle, but I need, I, I, re, I, I can't look at this world knowing what I know and not do anything about it. I felt that way even before I had a kid. Now I got a kid. And it's just like, he's looking up at me 
and I can't I can't leave the world the same way. I can't I can't I can't let the world be unchanged after I've been here. Um, and it's just a matter of finding some way to do something big or small to 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 fix this somehow, or to at least to get us on 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 some kind of a path towards it. So I'll wrap it up. I appreciate you listening. Oh, the song I'm rocking to right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna go against my own rule and pick like a, a pick, pick basically an artist because my man Kenny, when we were driving down, um, actually, and the, and the song came from Nova, uh, the sister who was with us also um, in the carpool. Uh, she recommend she she uh, she had recommended to us uh, the song Stardust by Lava and Free Soul. And that joint is is a banger, right? But then that basically got me into all, like a bunch of their other music. And there's a particular album that Free Soul did, and and that came out earlier this month. And the first song on that album is called Promise, and that joint is that's just the joint that I'm rocking to right now. The the, the lyrics in the in the verses aren't even necessarily like the, my favorite verses of the, of of theirs of his. Um, but just the beat and the chorus is that's just what's moving me right now. But there's so many other band, like tracks on that album and, and Lava's albums too that just are are just flowing through me right now. One of them is uh, Fertile Soil. Uh, one of them is is Ankh Ujasaneb. I mean the beats, the the melodies, the messaging. I mean this music is is just it's just hitting me right now, and I appreciate uh, Nova and Kenny for like. You know, uh, for for being in the car for for car for sharing the carpool with me, but also like recommending that music and put me on. So so appreciate y'all for that. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, you hit me up on Instagram. I'm at Real Adult R E A L D A D U L T. If you have any feedback on any prior episodes or ideas for new ones, holla at me. And uh, until then, be safe, be well, peace. Yeah.